0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Well, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, and I want to ask you guys a question. What are you living for? What drives you? What is the passion of your life? And there really are only two answers to that question as you think about what are you living for? One is you're living for your kingdom, your passion, your plan, your agenda. Or you're living for his kingdom, his passion, his plan, his agenda, his mission, not your mission. And that those are really the only two answers. Everything that you might think of either falls into one or the other category. What are you living for? What drives you? What's the passion of your life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And the answer To that and the way that you would know the answer to that is where your treasure is. Because as Jesus said in verse 34 that we looked at last week of Luke chapter 12, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your priorities, what you spend your money on, what you think about, what you talk about, that's your passion. And where that is, where that treasure is, is where your heart is at. It's the thing that drives you, it's the thing that motivates you. And if it's his kingdom, then it's going to look a lot like Jesus. And it's going to look a lot like his mission. If it's your kingdom, it's going to look a lot like you. And it's going to look a lot like your mission. And it's going to be selfish and self-seeking and earthly and carnal. And Jesus talking about that and talking about whether we're living for his kingdom or our kingdom in verse 31 says, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Seek his kingdom and all the things that you want in this life. Beyond sin, obviously, but all the things that people are looking for in this life. Everybody wants happiness and joy and peace and fulfillment and security and protection and provision. That's what everybody's looking for and longing for. And Jesus said, If you will seek my kingdom, then you'll have that, and you'll have me, and you'll have eternal life. But see, here's the double jeopardy. If you're not seeking his kingdom, and you're seeking your kingdom, then not only are you not going to have all the things that you're looking for in this life, you're not going to find them here. You won't have happiness. You won't have joy. You won't have fulfillment. There's no security. There's no provision. There's... None of those things in this world. And you can seek after them, but they're like the mirage in the desert. It's like you just think you're about to get it, and it's not there. You just go to reach out for it. One time I was at Fred Meyer. It was one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. I was walking across the parking lot, just about getting into the entrance area, and I see this dollar bill kind of going across the the sidewalk, and it looked just like the wind was blowing it, and I started to chase after and it started to go a little faster, and I started to run after a little more, and I'm chasing it through the parking lot all the way up to this car, and it's filled with teenagers, and they're just laughing their heads off. (laughs) And I'm with my in-laws and my wife, and they just thought that was the funniest thing they had ever seen. And as soon as I looked up and I saw that car full of teenagers, it just hit me like, not only... Have I been chasing this stupid thing around, but people have been watching me? I mean, and that's kind of like what it is, chasing after this world. And one of these days, it's going to hit you. Like the devil is laughing at you the whole time. You're chasing it around. You're running around. You're going nuts pursuing this thing. Maybe it is money. It's not always money. Maybe it's affirmation of people. Maybe it's just that that you would have love and acceptance maybe it's that you would be fulfilled that you would have security that you could have meaningful relationships and you're chasing them all around trying to find them in this world and they're only found in him and he says if you'll seek me you'll have all these things and you'll have me but if you don't seek me in my kingdom not only will you not have these things but you won't have eternal life either what are you living for what's your passion what drives you Jesus said it needs to be the kingdom of God or it's empty. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom as much as you want all of those things, as much as you're chasing after them and running around trying to find them. He wants to give it to you in a lasting way, in a real way, more than you want it. Have you ever thought about the fact that God wants to save you and others more than you want to be saved? Think about that. God wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to have relationship with you more than you do. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So therefore, don't worry about what you have. Sell what you have, in fact, and give alms. Be generous. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. That's where you should be putting your treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you living for? What's your passion? What are you pursuing with your heart? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. As Jesus goes on from here, as we've sort of laid the context, Jesus continues his teaching in the following verses, talking about his return and our anticipation for his return. We know that Jesus came once. He came as a lamb. He came as the suffering servant. But do you know that Jesus is coming again? And this time, he's coming as the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This time, the Bible says, we will experience, those that don't know him, will experience the wrath of the lamb, revelation. He's going to pour out his wrath in judgment in his second coming. His first coming was for redemption. It was to buy us back. It was to purchase us. It was so that we could have relationship. His second coming will be for judgment. And He is coming. We don't know when He's coming. and We ought to be anticipating His return. And what you're living for will really tell you if you're anticipating His return or not. Jesus will teach us here that we need to be living in anticipation of His return. The point being... That if Jesus isn't our passionate pursuit, if he's not what we are longing for and living for today, then what makes us think we're ready for his return? I mean, a lot of people talk about his return. I mean, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. He's going to change this world. He's going to bring about all the legislation that we've wanted. No more abortion. No more homosexual marriage. The, the laws and all of the things that people are marching in Washington, D.C. and in Salem about, I mean, it's all going to come to pass, potentially, maybe. But maybe a lot of these things that we're sort of lobbying for and longing for really aren't the heart of God so much. And that remains to be seen. But our anticipation for His return, if we aren't living for Him today, and I don't mean complaining about our current government Or the state of our culture. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, are we living for him today? Is he our passion? Because if he isn't, maybe we're not ready for his return. And if he's not our passion, if he's not what we long for and what we're living for, what makes us think we're going to want to spend eternity with him in the first place? See, we talk about that we want to get to heaven. That we can't wait for eternity. That we can't wait for Jesus to come back. Or... That when we die, we're going to be with him. And I hope that's true of all of you this morning. I I hope that that is exactly what will happen, is that you'll spend eternity with him. But here's the thing. If he's not your passion right now, if you're not really pursuing him right now, if you're not worshiping him right now, what makes you think that eternity with him is going to be so great for you? What makes you think you're going to want to spend eternity with him? See, eternity, you guys, isn't something in the far-off distant future. Eternity is something that starts right now. Eternal life with him starts today. You can be living in his kingdom right now. Now, no, it isn't perfect. It isn't heaven yet. He hasn't established his kingdom, but he wants to establish it in in your heart. That's what he wants to do. And so what are you living for? Tells you a lot about whether or not you're ready for his return. And that's the first point that I want to make is being ready. As we anticipate his return, the point is being ready. Being ready for his return. And Jesus illustrates this readiness in a couple ways. He talks about being ready through watchfulness and being ready through faithfulness. Being ready through watchfulness. He gives us two parables. The parable of the watchful servants and the parable of the watchful homeowner. Watchfulness. Are you ready for his return? Are you living for Jesus? If you are, then you'll be watchful for him. It's your passion. It's your pursuit. It's your focus. You're watching and you're waiting for him. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. The the girding of your waist, it, it has to do with readiness. Ready for battle, ready for work. Because the men of that day, as weird as it might seem to us, it's weird to me, they wore long, flowing robes. Now, don't get any ideas, guys. It's not cool now. No robes, no dresses. Stick with jeans. You'll be cool. But to d- then they wore long, flowing robes. And when it was time for battle or when it was time for work, they would pull that robe up and they would tuck it into their belt, which I think had to be a really good look, like showing your thighs and, you know, the, the farmer tan and the whole nine yards. But that's what they would do. They'd pull that baby up. They'd tuck it in, and they were ready for battle. And the lamp's burning. Remember, there was no electricity. You didn't just flip on the lights. If you were going to work during harvest through the night, put in long hours, then you would have to have lamps burning, torches lit. If there was an imminent battle, if you were going to be attacked, if there was a threat of war, then you would leave the lamps burning and the torches lit through the night so they couldn't sneak up on you. And so the idea here is readiness. Are you ready? And it's by being watchful, first of all. It says, you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. They're waiting. They're watching. Now, when we think about waiting, we think about doing nothing. Just waiting. Like waiting at a bus stop. You know, just basically sitting there listening to your iPod. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about sitting around doing nothing. Although for many of us, that sounds kind of appealing. That's not what this is about. Waiting. Waiting. Waiting on God doesn't mean that we sit there and wait for him to return like the people that sell all their belongings and move into the mountains and and live communally. That's not what that is talking about. I, I remember people back in the 80s during the whole Cold War thing who were thinking this was, you know, like Armageddon that would paint targets on their chests and say, you know, the commies can nuke me. I'm going home to be with Jesus. You know, just weird stuff, living on their roofs. And No, that's not what it means to wait on Jesus. It doesn't mean to get rid of all your stuff and live like a weirdo. It, it means that you are waiting on him. When you go to a restaurant, you're served by a waitress or a waiter, right? Now, do waitresses and waiters do nothing? Sometimes, and then you don't tip them, right? Sometimes it seems like they're doing nothing. Where is my food? Why is it cold? It tastes horrible. But they're not supposed to do nothing. They're supposed to be attentive to you. And when you need more water, they get more water. When you need more bread, they bring more bread. And if there's a problem with your food, they take it back and they get it right. And they bring you whatever condiments or whatever silverware or whatever need you have, they meet it. That's a waitress. That's a waiter. They're waiting on you. And that's what Jesus is asking of us is to wait on him, to serve him. It doesn't speak of inactivity. It speaks of being very active, but active in the right way, being on mission with him. You yourselves wait for your master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may be ready to open the door to him immediately. This is speaking of the watchful servants. The master goes away on a trip. He's going to go to a wedding. Maybe it's a family member's wedding. And weddings at that time were a big deal. None of this, you know, Saturday afternoon starts at 2, it's over at 2.20 and you're home by 3. No, none of those weddings. This was, a, this was a big ordeal. This was a week-long celebration. I, I don't know how they did it, honestly. I mean, you know, a couple hours, I'm ready to go do something else, you know, but this was a week-long thing. And it was a, it was a huge party. Huge celebration. So you didn't know when the master was coming home. He might come home in the middle of the night. It might be the next morning after the celebration was over. It might have got cut short a little bit. They they didn't know. The point was be ready. Be watchful. Be anticipating his return so that when he knocks on the door, when he comes, they're ready to open up to him immediately. It's nothing to hide. There's no no shame. There's no, oh man, you've been gone for a week and we haven't done squat. They've been busy. They've been active. They've been anticipating his return. And Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. The watchful servants, they were ready for him. Assuredly, I say to you that he, listen to this, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Now you would think the master has been gone all week, he comes home, his servants are there, and they're gonna serve him. But Jesus, speaking of himself and his return, says that when he comes and he finds us faithful, and he finds us on mission, and he finds us ready and watching and waiting for him, he's going to gird himself and serve us. It's amazing. That's what we have to look forward to in his return, and spending eternity with him, is Jesus our Savior serving us. It's also the legacy that we've been left with. You remember how Jesus girded himself like the lowliest of servants? And he stooped down and he washed his disciples' feet, something that none of them wanted to do. They all looked at each other and they all saw their feet were nasty and dirty. I mean, it was common. They looked around and they, no servants here. I guess we'll have to put up with it today. Jeez, Jesus, couldn't you have brought us a servant? I mean, we're important. Where's the servant here? And here comes Jesus. And he starts washing their feet. And instantly they knew that this wasn't about being served. This was about serving others. That's gospel ministry. Serving others. That's the legacy that we've been left with. And Jesus says, if I find you faithful, if I find you watching, if I find you ready for my return, I'm going to serve you. Blessed are those servants. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are are those servants no matter what time he comes now some scholars believe that luke was talking about the roman system of the night watch would have been which would have been four watches through the night the the hours of the evening broken up into four watches some believe it was the jewish system which would have been three it really is pointless doesn't matter the point is to be ready no matter what time jesus comes and notice he's going to come In the middle of the night. It's going to be the second watch. It's going to be the third watch of the night. It's going to be late. It's going to be at a time when most people are asleep. And see, you look at this world and you you think, most people aren't following Jesus. Why should I? Or you even look at the church and you think, most people aren't on fire for him. Most people aren't living for him. Most people aren't passionate about him. Why should I be? Because he tells you to be. He tells you to be watchful. And waiting on him. Because he'll come at a time when everybody else is asleep. He'll come at a time when it isn't convenient. He'll come at a time when you're thinking to yourself, all I want to do is go to bed, spiritually speaking. All I want to do is cash it in. Give up. This is too hard. And he says, keep going. Keep watching. Keep waiting. And now he gives us another illustration. He's given us the illustration of the watchful servants. Now he gives us the illustration of the watchful homeowner to illustrate this idea of being ready by watchfulness. He says, But know this, that if the master of the house, or probably better translated, the owner of the house, had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be watchful. Be like the homeowner who hears that his house is going to be broken into. Now, this is ridiculous because it would never happen, and that's what Jesus is trying to illustrate. But what if you got a phone call or an email? Hey, I'm going to break into your house tonight, probably around 11, 30, 12, somewhere in there. Just, just be ready. You'd be like, cancel the vacation. We're not going anywhere. Lock the kids up. Get the guns. You know, you, you would be ready. You'd be calling the police. They'd be on a stakeout. But that wouldn't happen. Because thieves don't tell you they're coming. They don't tell you when they're coming. They come unannounced. They come when you don't expect it. They come when you're not home, when you're not ready. Jesus said, You need to be prepared because I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And this was a euphemism that a lot of the New Testament writers employed in their writings talking about the second coming of Christ. Paul uses this language, Peter uses this language of the thief. In the night. It's not only a cheesy series of movies from the 70s. It's a, it's a real thing. That Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. If you haven't seen those movies, you should just go get them just for the laughs. If if you think that left behind is bad, thief in the night brings it to a whole new level. Left behind's bad, but these are worse. He's gonna come like a thief in the night. And are you ready for that? Are you watching? If you know that your house is going to be robbed, you're going to be watching. If you know a thief is coming, you're going to be watching. And that's what the point is, to be watchful, to be waiting on him, to be ready by watchfulness. Well, a second way that Jesus illustrates this idea of being ready is he says we need to be ready by faithfulness in verses 41 to 48. Being ready by faithfulness. Peter, who else would you expect, right? Peter says, Hey, Lord, Do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? Which is actually a question that Jesus doesn't answer, which is something I totally love about Jesus. Probably something we need to employ a little bit more is answering questions with questions or really getting to the heart of the question. When your kids ask you a question and you know what they're really asking, get to the heart of it. That's what Jesus does. He pretty much ignores Peter's question because it's pointless. Now, some scholars believe that Jesus is speaking to just the 12 disciples and those that would ultimately be in leadership in the church. Others believe that Jesus is speaking to all disciples. Now, if you look at the context, all the way back to verse 1, Jesus is speaking to a multitude of people, thousands of people, in fact, some translations say. They're tripping over each other. They can't even get close enough. They're crowding each other, to get close to Jesus, trampling one another, and Jesus speaks to his disciples, to those that are following him, out of the multitude. Then in verse 22, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, now I think that's still speaking of those that are following him, not the twelve, necessarily. But either way, these points that Jesus makes have application I think to leaders for sure, and to those that are given the responsibility of caring for God's people, but it has application for each one of us as we have been given stewardship of the greatest resource of God, the gospel, and the discipleship of others. That's our mission. Go and make disciples. So I think this is really a general call to all Christians, to all followers of Jesus. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward? Who is this person? Who's the faithful and wise steward of my things? What I've entrusted to you, who's faithful with it? Whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. One of the things that servants, would do that the head servant would do is that they would not only be in charge of the master's things and of the operation whatever it was that was going on whether he was a shepherd or a farmer or whether he was involved in some trade whatever it was they would put this steward this head servant in charge of all of that but then they would also put them in charge of making sure that all the other servants were fed properly and taken care of. Because you can imagine, the master goes away and it's a bunch of servants and slaves in that culture. I mean, the strongest among them would be wanting to take control, would be wanting to get more food for themselves, would be wanting to take advantage. So somebody had to be in charge to make sure that the weaker, the younger, the women would be taken care of and fed properly. And that would be the steward. He was put in charge of that. He was made the ruler of the household to give their portion of food in due season. And Jesus says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So he puts him in charge. He gives him responsibility. And he says, look, I don't know when I'm coming back, but this is what I want you to be doing. And when I do come back, I expect you to be about my business. And that's what he's given to us. He's put us on mission. And he said, I'm not telling you when I'm coming back but you should be anticipating my return. And here's what I'm asking you to do. And when I do return, I expect you to be about those things. If you've ever been a boss or you've ever owned a business, then you know what it's like to give people responsibilities and then to leave. And when I first planted the church here in Prineville, I I owned a business in Redmond. And toward the end of my tenure with that business... I was was gone a lot because I was planting the church here and I was busy and I was doing counseling and I was preparing for Bible studies and doing a lot of things. And so I wasn't there as much as I was earlier on when I first started the business. And I had a guy that was working for me and I would put him in charge and I would say, okay this is what needs to be done. I'm not going to probably be back today. And sometimes I wouldn't tell him, but he pretty much knew that I wasn't coming back because I lived a little ways away and it wasn't real convenient. But one of the best things you can do if you own a business is don't tell him when you're coming back. Kind of like Jesus does. He's smart. He doesn't tell us when he's coming back, but he he would pretty much know he's probably not coming back today. And I would give him a list of things. Okay, we need to do this. We need to do that. And it was a produce business. And there was a lot of things that had to do with rotation of product and getting rid of older stuff so that we could get into the newer stuff. And it's really a bummer when you sell new product and you've got old product in the cooler. And I would come back and I would look in the cooler and I would see all this stuff that didn't get done. And it would just infuriate me because, I mean, you're just looking at money just rotting away, right? And I would say, dude, why didn't you do this? Why, why didn't this happen? What, well, we got busy here and I was doing this and I was rearranging that. Look, I've been doing this for a long time. I own this business and that money in there is food on my table, okay? So you're, you're cutting me out. You're undercutting me. I don't like that. Do what I'm telling you to do, please. I, I'm the boss. You work for me, just do this. This is the thing that needed to happen. When you come back as a boss and your employees aren't doing what you asked them to do, it's frustrating. And think how much more frustrating it is for God who's given us a mission, who's given us responsibility, who's made us a steward over his greatest possession, the gospel and other people and their salvation and their discipleship. And he comes back and He's like, what's going on? Oh, I had lots of things to do. I got really busy with life. I-, I had to have fun. I mean, you can't just be working all the time. Plus, I was working all the time. And I mean, I was raising my kids, and I was going on vacation, and I was staying up to date with the current events. And I mean, then there's Facebook and, you know, Farm Town. I mean, do you, you know how important that is? I mean, you got to go back on there to, get, to pick your apples. Feed the pigs, or somebody else is going to steal them. They're going to die. I mean, you've got to go back. You've got to set your watch by it. It's important, Jesus. Don't you know it's important? I mean, we're talking about Facebook here. And Jesus is going, I gave you a mission, and you're not on my mission. Why is that? Because he's not the passionate pursuit of your life. He's not what you're living for. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. When he does come back and he finds you on mission and he finds you faithful, and he finds you watching for him, he'll give you more to do. He's talking about eternity and the responsibility that you're going to be given if you're faithful now, he'll make you responsible for more things. And that's something that you need to know about heaven, is that heaven isn't going to be this perpetual sitting around on a cloud, playing a harp, or sitting under a tree naked eating an apple for eternity. I mean, maybe that sounds cool to you. I don't know. To me, that sounds really boring. Maybe for a day. That would be cool, especially like if I was really cut and stuff. If I'm really cut and stuff, laying around under a tree naked for a couple weeks, that might be kind of cool. But right now, that sounds horrible. It sounds absolutely horrible. And floating around on a cloud playing a harp, I don't even like harps. Maybe if it's a guitar, because I've always wanted to play a guitar, and maybe if, if there's like thousands of adoring fans, you know, maybe that for a little while would be cool. But even that would get boring. He's going to give you responsibilities. He's going to be giving us things to do, things to accomplish. Remember when you were a little kid and you were just starting to get big enough that your dad could give you something to do and you felt really important? And now as a dad, you know, I know that I'm just giving them something to do to kind of get them out of my hair. And I'm hoping that they don't burn the house down with whatever I'm asking them to do. And you know you can pretty much only give them one task at a time. If you give them two, you're pushing it. One is about it, and you hope that they can go and accomplish that. You know, take this milk jug out to the garbage cans—the green one, the recycle one, the bigger one. Open it up, put it inside, then come back. And like a half an hour later, they come back. They still have the milk jug in their hand, and who knows what they've been doing for a half an hour? Right? What happened to the milk jug? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> Or you go outside and the milk jug is in the yard and, and they've been playing. But it's kind of cool when, when God gives you something to do, you, you feel like you're important to him. And that's what he's going to do. If we're faithful and we're watchful, he's going to give us more to do, more to accomplish, making us ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now, I don't think there's a lot of ambiguity what Jesus is saying here. And I wish I could soften it and try to spin it a little bit to make it say something other than it does. But this is what it says. Just because you make a profession of faith, just because you say you're a Christian, just because you go to church, or you've read the Bible, or maybe you've even told people about Jesus, but you're not living watchfully and faithfully, and you're not on mission with God, then when he comes and he finds you about your own business, Now this is actually speaking of those that are living in complete opposition to God. That is when he comes, he finds you living in a a lifestyle of sin. In a lifestyle of carnality. He finds you coming beating the the servants. He he finds you mistreating people. And, And this is speaking about taking what he's given you and abusing it. Taking the responsibility he's given you and abusing it living in a lifestyle of opposition to God. And maybe you're in that place of living in drunkenness, of living in just abandon to your flesh and to your lusts and to your carnality, living in the pursuit of material things. And the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter five as Paul talks about the fruit of the flesh. We know that passage as the fruit of the spirit, but he also talks about the fruit of the flesh. And he says, those people that are living after the fruits of the flesh. And you can read that list on your own. But they're living for these things. They have no part of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus says. If he comes back, he doesn't care about your profession. He doesn't care that you came forward when you were 17 at a youth camp. He doesn't care that you were raised in a Christian home or how many verses you have memorized. If he comes and you're living in opposition to him and you're living in a lifestyle of sin and carnality in the flesh and just given over to those things, then you're not a Christian and you'll be judged and you'll be placed and given your portion with the unbelievers. There's no way, you guys, to twist that, to spin that, to make it say something other than it does. The portion in place with the unbelievers is hell. It's judgment. You'll face the judgment of God. Because you've proven that despite what you say with your mouth, you haven't been converted. You're not regenerated. You don't know Jesus. But there are those as well who have made a profession of faith, who aren't living immorally, who aren't living in gross, fleshly living, who haven't just given themselves over to the flesh. I mean, they are talking the talk and they look the part and they've been regenerated, but they're not on mission with God. They haven't truly figured that part out yet. And maybe that's some of you. You've cleaned up your life. You don't cuss. You're not sleeping around. You're not getting bombed out of your mind. You're not hooked on meth. You're not beating your wife. You're not abusing your children. I mean, these are good things. These are places we ought to want to be. But that's not good enough. That's not good enough to be living the way that Jesus has called us to live. Yes, he wants all of those things to be taken care of, and he'll do that. He'll take care of that stuff. It'll just shed off of you if you allow him to work in you. But then there's being on mission with him and being faithful to him and being watchful and being about his business. See, if you own a business and you put your employees over certain responsibilities and you come back and they've done nothing, I mean, in one sense, you're kind of stoked that they didn't burn your building down. In one sense, you're happy that they didn't take a machete and destroy your merchandise. In one sense, you're happy that they didn't ruin your business and your reputation. But in another sense, you you think to yourself, you've just worked a full day. I've paid you for a full day and you haven't done anything. I'm not really happy about that. See, so the one guy, he's actually in opposition to God. He's the guy burning down the guy's business. He's the guy ruining his reputation. He's the guy being actually counterproductive to the company. But then there's people, and maybe you're in this place. You're not doing anything really wrong. You're not living in gross sin, but you're not living for Jesus either. It's just kind of neutral. You're just kind of coasting through. I mean, you think you're doing well, but Jesus says, in reality, you're not. In reality, you will be judged as well. He says in verse 47, that servant who knew his master's will, he knew what he was called to do, he knew the mission and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. So that person who isn't living for the flesh necessarily, isn't full on recklessly sinning, saved but not on mission, that person will be judged with many stripes. I think this is the same person that Paul talks about In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he talks about being saved, but as through fire. It's where we get this saying that you're saved by the skin of your teeth. And Paul talks about that when we get to heaven, we're going to stand before Jesus. And we are going to be judged as Christians for everything that we did with what he gave us. We're going to be held accountable. Just like when your boss shows up and he wants to ask you, what did you do? Here's the list of things I gave you to do. How did you do it? Did it get accomplished? And you're going to give a reckoning for that. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand before Jesus as Christians, and we're going to be judged not only for the lifestyle that we lived, but also for what we did with what he gave us. See, the sin has been taken care of. It has been washed away. But now we will stand in judgment for what we did with our gifts and our talents and our treasures. And it says we will be tested by fire. And all those things that are wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to burn up like that. But those things that are gold and silver and precious stones, those things will remain. And so how much of your life is wood, hay, and stubble? How much of your life is really pretty meaningless? How much of your life is going to burn up? And how much of your life will remain? You could be a Christian on your way to heaven, but if you're not watching for his return and you're not waiting for him, you will be judged and you'll have nothing to show for your life. Putting it in neutral and coasting is sin as a Christian. And the Bible says in James chapter three, to him who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so you might be thinking, man, I've got it licked. I, I'm not doing the horrible stuff anymore but now you're in neutral and you're just kind of going through the motions and you're not on mission for God. He says that's sin. You know the good you ought to do. Jesus put it like this. You know your master's will, but you did not prepare yourself or do according to his will. That's sin. And you will be beaten with many stripes. You're not going to be torn asunder and given your portion with the unbelievers, but you will be judged for that. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And so in other words, if, if you aren't given a lot of responsibility, you won't be asked for a lot of production. If you aren't given the privilege of a lot of Bible knowledge and a lot of insight into the things of God, then you're not going to be held accountable for that. To whom much is given, much is required. And so that person that really just didn't know, they aren't going to be held to as high of a standard. Now, you're responsible because A, you live in America where the preponderance of materials and resources for you to grow as a Christian is overwhelming. There is a plethora of stuff. There's Christian radio. There are bookstores that sell nothing but Christian materials. There are Christian somewhat TV stations. There is the internet, which is what I would point you to, and to good resources on the internet that are just loaded with teachings and Bible studies and helps for you to grow in your walk. But there are people in other parts of the world that don't even own a Bible, that have to go to churches underground. I don't think I'm talking to an underground church here. I don't think I'm talking to people that have to tear a page out of the Bible just so they can have their own piece of the Bible. But there are people in China like that. And that's why people risk their lives to smuggle Bibles into China, into Red China, because they're illegal in some areas and you have to be underground. And a a church of 50 people might meet in some basement somewhere and they've got one Bible between them. And so you get to take home this page today. You get to take home this book. The thought of having multiple Bibles and Bible software and teaching on the radio and the internet is just something they can't even conceive of. And so they're not held to the standard that we're held to. You guys not only live in America, but you go to a Bible teaching, gospel centered, Jesus focused church where the word of God is taught and where you are given the opportunity to be on mission and you're pointed in that direction and you're reminded on a weekly basis And if you keep ignoring it, the judgment is more severe for you. To whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. It's a big responsibility. And so the first point is to be ready. Be ready by watchfulness. Be ready by faithfulness. And the second point, verses 49 through 59, is to be saved. When we talk about living in anticipation of his return, the first thing is we need to be ready. We need to be ready by watching. We need to be ready by living faithfully with what he's given us to do so that when he comes back, he finds us about his business. But you guys, another way that we live in anticipation of his return is simply by being saved. And I think sometimes that we look at people, maybe you look at yourself, and you think, why isn't this person getting it? Why aren't they on mission? Why aren't they passionately pursuing Jesus? Why isn't Jesus what they're living for. Why are they living for farm town or some stupid TV show or some hobby? What, what is it? What's going on? Why don't you get it? And we're trying to pound it into them. Come on, get it, get it. And the problem is they're not saved. They're not regenerated. And so you might as well be speaking a foreign language. You might as well be telling your dog about higher level mathematics. You, know, you can do that all day long. I can sit there and talk to my dog all day long about deep theology. And I mean, he'll pay attention. Just the fact that I'm sitting there talking to him makes him happy. But he has no clue what I'm saying. And I think some people are hearing it and hearing it and hearing it, but they're just like, just it's not making any impact at all because they're not saved. And that's what this section really talks about is that you need to get saved. You need to become born again. I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care how many sermons you've heard how many scriptures you have memorized. I don't care how many hymns you can sing without a hymn book or how many worship songs you don't even need the screen for. It's not what it's about. It's about having your life completely transformed by the gospel and living in passionate pursuit of him. Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were kindled already. I came to send fire, Jesus said. John the Baptist would say the same thing. In chapter three of Luke, John the Baptist said that he was coming to baptize with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose, speaking of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's one aspect to this fire that is a fire unto salvation. But then John goes on to say, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff that is... The useless part of the wheat, it looked a lot like wheat, but when it was separated, it was useless. And that's what he's gonna do in the church. He's gonna separate the wheat from the chaff. And many people have been looking a lot like wheat. They've been looking like a Christian their whole life. Nobody can tell any difference. But then there's that separation, judgment. And he says, he'll take the chaff and he will burn it with unquenchable fire. And so Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth. And this fire is twofold. It depends on the condition of your heart, what the fire will do. For some, the fire will purify. It'll be like putting heat to gold. It separates the dross from the precious. It's like the sun's heat on clay and on wax. If you put the sun's heat on clay, it hardens it. You put that very same Heat of the sun on wax, it melts it. There's no difference in the heat, it's the condition of the material that the heat is influencing. There's no difference in the fire that Jesus is sending, it's just your heart. If your heart is open to Him, then you'll receive His fire of purification unto salvation. If your heart is hardened to Him, and I don't care how many times you go to church. If your heart is hardened to him, then you'll receive a fire unto judgment. Jesus said it another way. He said, I am a rock. I am the rock. And you have two choices with me. You can fall on the rock and be broken. Or the rock can fall on you and you'll be crushed to powder. Now, when I think about falling on a rock and busting up my knees and scraping my elbows and hitting my chin on the rock, none of that sounds fun. But when I think about that same rock falling on me and crushing me to powder... I'll go with option A. I'll go with falling on the rock, skinning up my elbows over having it fall on me and crushing me. I'll go with his fire to purification. Yeah, it's painful. He's he's burning the dross and the worthlessness out of your life. He's changing you. You're going through a metamorphosis. You're no longer the same person and it's a brokenness and it's painful as he breaks you and as he fashions you after his image. But I'll take that over unquenchable fire to judgment for eternity. He's sending his fire. What kind of fire are you going to receive? It's up to the condition of your heart. God the Father sent his judgment upon Jesus. He poured out his wrath, his holy anger upon Jesus. And now you either receive that through him, his vicarious gift, to you of taking your wrath, or you stand under the wrath of God, accountable for your own sins. You decide how the fire is going to influence and impact you. It's coming. It will hit you. You might have dodged it for a while, but it will hit you. And it will either hit you now for purification, or it will hit you later for judgment. Jesus said, in order for this to happen, I have a baptism to be baptized with, And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. What is Jesus talking about? In order for his fire of purification to come, in order for his fire of judgment to come upon the earth so that he can set up his kingdom upon the earth, in order for that to happen, he had to be baptized with our sin. He had to take our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin with our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for you. And for me, he was baptized in that, totally overwhelmed with your sin and my sin. He took that upon himself and that's what made him cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't the physical anguish so much. I'm sure that wasn't like something he was stoked about to have nails driven into his hands and feet. I'm sure he wasn't like, party, yeah, this is gonna be cool. But at the same time, Jesus was not talking about the physical pain when he talks about the anguish as much as he was talking about the spiritual pain of being separated from the Father, of having the Father turn his face from the Son, of having the Father pour out his holy righteous wrath upon him. That's what made him sweat great drops of blood, taking your sin, and he did that for you. That's what he was distressed about. And the Bible actually tells us that he set his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. Nothing was going to deter him from what he came to do because he loved you that much. And you can continue to reject him. And you can continue to come to church and to play the game. But if you have not been regenerated by the purifying fire of God, then you're headed for eternal destruction. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I think you could interview a thousand people. Say, hey, Jesus asked a question. Do you suppose that he came to bring peace? And I think a thousand out of a thousand would say yes. But listen to what Jesus said. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. I think many have explored Christianity simply because they've been told it will be a means to an end. Christianity will solve your problems. And in this narcissistic society and culture that we live in that is all about self, we've had to change our evangelistic approach, or at least we think we've had to, so that we can grow the church. And what we've told people is, look, Jesus will solve all your problems. He'll be everything that you've ever wanted. And so if you're broke, come to Jesus. He'll give you money. If you are in a horrible marriage and it's on the rocks, come to Jesus, and he'll fix your marriage. If your kids hate you, come to Jesus. They'll be your best friends again. I mean, this is what we're essentially telling people. Just come to Jesus. Slap Jesus onto your life. Start coming to church, and he'll solve all your problems. But that's not at all what Jesus says. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace necessarily. I came to bring division. And what you find... Often, when you invite Jesus into your life and you make him Lord, and he begins that purifying work in you, and he begins to break you, and you begin to have eternity as your priority instead of this world, what you begin to find is that things don't get better. In fact, sometimes they get worse. People lose their jobs because now their priorities are different. People lose spouses because they can't handle the fact that you love Jesus people are further alienated from their children because they hate the fact that you're born again. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but it certainly can happen that way. And Jesus brings division. Just ask the Apostle Paul, who was on top of the world, had everything going for him as Saul, the persecutor of the church. He was a hero. His Jewish countrymen respected him and loved him and thought he was the bomb. And... He had a family. He was part of the Sanhedrin, which meant he had to at least be married. It's possible that he had children. He tells us that he was wealthy. And then read about Paul in the book of Acts. No wife. She apparently left him. No money. He was beaten with rods by the very same people that said he was the bomb and loved him. And he was their hero. Now they're beating him and they're plotting his death. He was imprisoned. He was broke. He went many days hungry. Why? Because of the gospel. But today we say, come get Jesus. He's a smorgasbord of whatever you want him to be. He'll give you everything you've always wanted. That's not the gospel. The gospel says something very different. The gospel says it's a lot less about this life, and it's a lot more about the life to come. Make him the passionate pursuit of your life. Make him what you're living for. And you might have difficulty in this life. You might have struggle. Things won't always work out the way you want them to but you have eternity to look forward to. That's the gospel. Jesus brings division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Here's five people in a house. Before the gospel came into that home, they were all living like normal Jewish people. A mom, a dad, a son who's married, who brought his wife back to the home, and a daughter. But now you bring the gospel in, and there's division. There's two against three, there's three against two. And that's what the gospel does, and it shouldn't surprise us. If you want Jesus to be the passionate pursuit of your life, if you're anticipating his soon return, you guys, it will bring division and difficulty into your life. But it's worth it. Be saved from fiery judgment, 49 to 53, The second point under this idea of being saved is to be saved from the mundane. Verses 54 to 56, he says, "'Then he said to the multitudes, "'Whoever, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, "'immediately you say a shower is coming. "'And when you see the south wind blow, "'you say there will be hot weather, and there is.'" They were really good at predicting the weather. If clouds were coming out of the west, they knew rain was coming. If wind was blowing out of the south, They knew it was going to be hot. The wind was coming out of the desert. Jesus said, look, I'm really glad that you can discern the weather, but you're hypocrites because you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? You guys, the point here is that Jesus wants to save us from the mundane. He wants to save us from knowing a lot about things that don't matter and being completely ignorant about things that do. And many of you, many of us are in that place. We are pursuing things that don't matter. The insignificant. Now, I have hobbies and I have things I enjoy and I love Facebook as much as you do. Haven't played farm town, don't plan to. But not because I'm too good or something, it just doesn't interest me at all. Mafia sounds kind of cool. Stealing stuff and killing people and stuff, that sounds cool. But I, I like... To, to be about those things as well. I, I love sports and I have hobbies and I like to blog and I enjoy current events in the news and politics. But if I can recite my favorite player's stats or current events or tell you all about every application there is on Facebook and I'm not intimately acquainted with Jesus... That's a joke. That's living for the mundane. That is focusing on the wrong things. If, if your purpose in life is something that really doesn't matter, then Jesus says you're a hypocrite. You're just like these people that could discern the weather, but they couldn't discern the times they were living in. Here was Jesus right under their nose, the Son of God, God in human flesh, and they missed him. Here he was wanting to set up his kingdom, and they missed it. And Jesus wants to set up his kingdom in your life and you're missing it because you're too busy with things that are inconsequential. You're too busy pursuing things that don't matter. Some of you spend more money on your dog than you do on the kingdom. And there's something wrong with that. There's something very wrong with that. Some of you guys have more money in your car, in the wheels, in in the, the stuff of your life than you do invested in the kingdom of God. And that is a tragedy, and we need to repent, and we need to ask Jesus to deliver us from the mundane. He says, yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? Why can't you figure this out, Jesus says? Why are you listening to all these other voices, and you're not listening to me? They were listening to the religious leaders, they were listening to all number of people, and Jesus said, hear me, guys, hear the voice of God this morning. Quit listening to the world and to the voices in this world and start hearing from him. And when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, to the ruler, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. The point here is under this idea of being saved. We've been saved from fiery judgment. We've been saved from the mundane, and here Jesus says, you've been saved or can be saved from your spiritual debt. If you're going to the judge and you know you're guilty, the best thing you can do is settle out of court. Just deal with it. Deal with the person that you've offended or with whoever is dragging you to court. Settle out of court. And that's what God is saying to you this morning. He's given you the opportunity to settle out of court with him. Jesus came and he paid your debt. And now you just need to identify with him. He came and he took the wrath of God at the cross. He took all of your judgment, all of your shame, all of the debt that you owed. He took that. And now you either identify with that and you accept it and receive it and you settle out of court with God or you go and you stand before God on your own, accountable for your own actions. And you can try to excuse your actions. You can try to make all kinds of, of alibis and reasons for why you did what you did, but you're guilty before God. And you will be judged before God if you are apart from Jesus Christ. And that's the point. Be saved. Be saved from his judgment. Be saved from living the mundane. Be saved from the spiritual debt that you owe God. What are you living for? What is your pursuit? What is your life? about where your treasure is there your heart will be also jesus is coming at an hour you don't know he's coming when you don't expect him to are you ready for his return well if you're not living for jesus if you're not living for him then you aren't ready for his return if you aren't living for him today you guys what makes you think that you are going to enjoy spending eternity with him tomorrow what are you living for Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we thank you for your exhortation for us to be absolutely consumed with you. Because God, it's not an issue of whether we're going to be worshipers. It's an issue of what will we worship. It's not an issue, Lord, if we are going to have gods in our life. The issue is, the question is, what will we make into a god? And Jesus, we want you to be our god. We want you to be our passion. We want to be living for you and nothing else. Jesus, we want to be ready for your return, that you would find us faithful, that you would find us watching, that you would find us about your business, Jesus, on mission with you, serving you. That's what we want, so that we can stand before you, having you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, enter into the joy of your Lord. God, that's what I want for every person here. And Lord, if there's anyone here that's rejecting you, Lord, that's living in opposition to you, whose life is saying, I'm not regenerated, I'm not born again, I don't know Jesus, I don't have a relationship. Lord, I pray right now that they would ask you, despite all the things that have happened in their past, all the times they've asked you to come into their life and and yet they really didn't mean it, Lord, I pray right now that their heart would be open to you. And they would invite you to come in and to be their Savior and their Lord. That they would be absolutely and utterly broken by the gospel this morning. And Lord, I pray for those who may know you, who have been open to you, who are headed to heaven and yet aren't on mission with you. Lord, I pray this morning right now in this place, Lord, that we would repent God, we confess it to you as sin, to him who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Lord, we know that if we continue on this path, we're going to be those that will stand before you, tested by fire and have nothing to show for our life. Lord, we're going to be judged, beaten with many stripes. It talks about here, Lord, there's going to be a judgment for not being faithful with what you've given us, God, and we confess that to you. We ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we want to be on mission with you from this point forward. We want to be serving you. God, we want to use the time, the treasures, and the talents that you've given to us, not to make us famous, but to make you famous. Jesus, not to build our kingdom, but to build your kingdom. We want to seek and serve you and you alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.